Welcome to the New Zealand Sales and Marketing Insider, the podcast where we pull back the curtain and speak to the brains behind sales and marketing activity that has delivered real results. Get inspired and get actionable ideas by hearing what they did and how they did it. Brought to you by me, Paul Spain, along with Gorilla Technology. Hi folks, greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Sales and Marketing Insider. I'm your host, Paul Spain, and today we're speaking with Queenstown businesswoman, Emily Rutherford. She's co-owner and marketing director at Kiwi Water Park. Now, Emily has an incredible story, studying out, studying at Otago University through to international uh, activities in the UK and Dubai, and then coming home to New Zealand during the pandemic to launch what has been an incredible runaway success, the Kiwi Water Park. In its first season, they attracted uh, 15,000 attendees, and in their their second uh, summer, uh, they managed to double that to 30,000, and they've attracted many, many millions of views through social media, in particular with TikTok. Welcome along to the show, Emily. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Fantastic. It's uh, very nice to be uh, down here in in the Queenstown uh, Lakes region. Yeah, I know. It's lovely. I mean, it's been pretty cold the last few days, but it's seeming okay today. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm very keen to, to hear your uh, your story. Uh, you've attracted quite a bit of attention, I think, over the over the last couple of years uh, with the Kiwi Water Park that you've launched, and I've seen it all over social media. You've been on TV news, um, at all sorts. Uh, but keen to go, you know, go back and um, and hear a bit about your your story um, and how you got interested in in selling and marketing and entrepreneurship. Um, so where did all that begin? Were you, did you grow up here in the South Island? Yeah, so I grew up in Queenstown. I was born in Queenstown, grew up in Queenstown. And after growing up, I did a large amount of dance and fitness and sport. And I also loved swimming and playing in the lake and all that kind of thing. And then from there, I went to university in Dunedin. Third year in university, I had uh, it was a Kiwi host, which is when you host international students. And this is when Zumba, the dance fitness trend, had just come out. And um, I ended up with a flatmate called Richard, who was a Zumba instructor from Canada. And um, he was studying abroad in Dunedin. And basically, he really wanted to set up some Zumba classes in Dunedin. And no gym would allow him to open the classes. And um, he had had five, six hundred people, sometimes a class at his university in Canada. And the university gym here wouldn't allow him to start a class. And he said, look, I'll teach for free. Like, I just really want to start it. It'll be fun. And no one would allow him to do it. And I said, hey, I'll go talk to the guys that run the local rugby hall. And let's just try and get it started. And I spoke to these, these blokes that ran the... Alhambra rugby union like club halls just down from um, where our flat was and I was like oh you know it's just going to be some girls coming along and doing a wee bit of dancing on a Monday and a Wednesday night how much will you charge us oh I don't know 20 bucks or whatever it was and I was like great so then I made a Facebook page and made Facebook events and um, basically invited everyone I knew to come along and we were charging like three dollars a person or something 
to Richard's class and then within two or three weeks we were getting 400 people a class and these guys from the rugby hall were like you guys are gonna get out like we didn't agree to this (laughs) what an (laughs) incredible success though like that really speaks to you know I guess there must have been a number of aspects in terms of what allowed you to to draw those sort of numbers but you obviously were, were quite capable at getting the word out yes so that was definitely my strong suit is getting people to to things so then he was just there for that semester and about a month into that I did the Zumba training myself and then we set up more classes and I set up my own classes and then he went back to Canada then I had all the gyms wanting me to teach for them and I set up classes all over Dunedin and I did that for a few years and I got hundreds of people along and I made some good money and it was a lot of fun and really good fitness and then um, yeah obviously Zumba was sort of the fad at the time and obviously that fad's kind of over now but it was really fun you know because we were the you know we were the first one of the first Zumba classes in New Zealand when I set up the class for Richard so yeah that was my first business. (laughs) That's fantastic tell us a little bit about your your studies. I did a BCom at Otago um, throughout and then I did a master's degree in business and entrepreneurship after that. So I had it all done by 22. So it was pretty quick moving through it all. <laughs> well done. And how did you find that sort of, you know, set you up for for being in business? I definitely think that um, the BCom is a really good idea. I've said this to my nephews, um, you know, who aren't sure what they want to do. I think doing a BCom three years gives you a basic understanding of business and marketing and does change the way you you think a little bit about business and marketing. So I definitely think um, doing that Bachelor of Commerce um, helped me and also alongside starting this fitness business on the side helped me a lot. So it was really good and and great networking as well in Dunedin and a lot of fun. So I definitely loved my time at uni in Dunedin. Yeah, and so that work with Zumba, what did that set you up and open the door for you to do next? I have always had a massive passion for dance and fitness and um, all of that kind of thing. I went to London and I was traveling around with my cousin and and we ended up um, getting a job, like just casual work as like promo girls at Twickenham Stadium in London. And I remember... They had like the World Rugby Sevens Championship and I remember seeing the dancers on the field um, and I was like, oh, I want to do that. We ended up auditioning to um, perform at these like, you know, big rugby and, and everything, football and everything events as dancers and we got the job and we couldn't believe it. So um, that was super fun and then from there I was like, you know what? I think we could start our own entertainment company and do it better. So I ended up setting up my own entertainment company and hiring like dancers and performers and cheerleaders and promo staff and DJs and you name it for all kinds of different events. So what great. what were the things when who you were working for initially, what were the things that sort of stood out in terms of the shortcomings, the areas that you felt that you could uh, you could do better? I think it was just Hard to really put my finger on it. Ultimately, just felt like I could do it myself better and I felt as though there was more that I could get from a marketing perspective um, out of it and that's why I set up my own own thing. And also, you know, just being a 
performer or a dancer or anything, sometimes you don't get picked for jobs. It's it's unreliable financially as well. So as we were new and we we're from New Zealand um, and some of these girls from, from England, they know each other for years. So we were probably one of the, not the last to be picked, but we were definitely not front of the queue because we were, we were newer and not from there. Yeah, so, yeah, you probably went so well networked and so on. So starting, you know, almost from scratch like that to start your own business, how did you go out and get known and, and actually get uh, get hired? I think the reason that I got so many great jobs and events and things was just pure ballsiness really I think I you worked hard yeah I worked hard you but must have worked hard. I worked really really hard but I don't really see what's the word for it I don't really see people as above me so whereby somebody might be scared to go and speak to the CEO of a big football club or you know go and speak to the owner of you know a rugby team or an owner of a big organization I don't care at all I remember going up to the owner of Saracen's rugby team who's like a massive businessman and just literally like oh you should hire me to organize entertainment for the games and he was like oh sure like what have you done in the past and I just showed him and and he was like yeah sure let's have a meeting about it I'll set you up you can meet with my daughter and I'll set you up with a meeting with her so I think Definitely confidence and persistence and believing in yourself um, in London is so important because a lot of people have low self-esteem, low confidence, and I think that's probably my strength is I have always had the confidence to go and just speak to people, and people can always say no, and I think that's my um, my mantra is like, well, if they say no, I'm in the same position I was in before they before I asked them. So, it's, yeah, well. it sounds like you went in with confidence too, though, right? You you weren't probably expecting a no by the sounds of it you were you prepared yourself to be able to actually pick up that uh, that business and and to give them confidence um, off the back of your confidence yes correct and I yeah I definitely believe in everything I do I feel like if you believe in everything you do and, and you are passionate about what you're doing then other people will automatically be drawn to that so you wouldn't have been so confident if you were going and selling somebody else's business and you weren't actually confident in in what they had to offer Yes, correct. I've always believed in what I'm selling. I've never really been able to sell anything that I haven't believed in. That's great. Where to from there? I built my business up in London over a few years. I ended up actually getting the contract from Emirates to run the entertainment for the Dubai Rugby Sevens, the 2019, December 2019 Dubai Rugby Sevens. So that was a really cool job. How did that come about? That sounds like a pretty big deal to me. So I basically called the CEO of Dubai Rugby Sevens. He was actually a New Zealander. Ah, that's convenient. So that was really lucky. He no longer does it. He's retired now. Um, So that definitely helped me. And I was just persistent. I was just really persistent at, you know, pushing for that job and, and everything. So, and actually the DJ is a New Zealander called Mark <laughs> um, for Dubai Rugby 7. So there was a few Kiwis around that. I definitely think being a New Zealander definitely helps with things like rugby and cricket. Um, people in the rugby and cricket scene tend to respect New Zealanders, which is good. I think we have a good name of doing what we say we're going to do. Um, That's, yeah, it's pretty important on the international stage when you're trying to open 
open these doors, right? Yeah, I definitely think so. New Zealanders have a um, reputation in sport overseas of kind of doing what they say they're going to do. So I think it's a good reputation that New Zealanders do have, which is was definitely helpful, I think. And you obviously had to have the work ethic that you were actually going to live live up to it and, and do what you say you would do and... That's obviously part of how you operate. You're a hard worker. Yes, definitely. And and um, I also got on quite well with um, Russians and Eastern Europeans and Israelis. And I'm quite blunt. And a lot of British people aren't very blunt. So when I also organised um, staffing and, and things for conferences, a lot of those clients were Chinese or Russian or Israeli and and I'm quite blunt so I will do what I say I'm going to do and in London there's a lot of people that um, talk a big game and don't deliver Um, and that's so important I think to build a reputation that you will deliver what you say you're going to do. Were there any challenges once you got through to the CEO how did you basically go about closing that business was it challenging in terms of how to price it and how to you know how to actually sell and to close that deal yeah it was challenging and what was really difficult and what I was going to be changing if I had stayed in London if the pandemic hadn't happened was I was working B to B in London and I had a really strong understanding because I would be at these events, these conferences, these sports games, and I would be organising the staff and the entertainment that dealt with the the spectators or the um, guests at the party or the guests at the conference or whatever it was. And what my heart, the hardest thing I found was how quickly staff turn over in the UK. So I could do a really good job for, a, say, a conference and know exactly what I was doing. And then it all go really, really well. And then the next year or six months later, when they're looking to do it all again, they've got a whole new marketing team. And there's a much higher rotation of staff in the UK. So that was my biggest difficulty and the most frustrating thing working B2B because every new marketer wants to put their own stamp on something. Right, so they might want to hire somebody else or they might want to negotiate whatever. So so how did you how did you deal with that? That was the hardest thing to deal with honestly because a lot of the time it wasn't necessarily they always wanted to hire something else but they'd often want to do something differently. So You'd be like, okay, we did this, 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 and this, and this last year, and that worked really well. They'd be like, okay, but we want to go for a different theme this year. Okay, but I know that this one will work well. So it was really hard. And I think if I was going to do something like that again, I would um, only do it if I could be actually the head of a whole event rather than... um, you know, just organise the entertainment and then having somebody else be the head of the event telling me what I've got to do. So I think I did find that really hard and I don't think I would go back to it because I feel like, especially when you've done it for so many years and you know exactly what works and somebody's just brand new and they're coming in and tell you do something completely different, it's really annoying. <laughs> yeah, and and the challenges of doing that, does it cost you a lot more to do something different that you've basically got to you know, come up with something new or is it just that it's it's not so successful so you wouldn't feel as confident sort of selling that? What were the, what were the you know, challenges of that? Because often, 
often, you know, when it comes to if you can sort of productize something or do the same thing sort of consistently on an ongoing basis, you know, you can get better and better at, you know, whatever that service is, whatever that offering is. Um, but if you always have to customize it, certainly in some fields, then that gets really expensive because you're not doing, you know, what you're really, really good at doing. You're having to, you know, come up with something unique that may not be as effective. How did that, you know, play out from your perspective? Yeah, well, it wasn't just that, but it's also if somebody completely changes the the game, then um, often sponsors will pull out. And also... The, often then the customers or the guests or the attendees of whatever it is don't like it. So then there's bad reviews of whatever that thing is and then it's like I'm the one that's organised it but actually it wasn't my idea, the theme or whatever we did. So your reputation's at stake when they, they make a change. Correct and that was what that's why I feel like I wouldn't go back to just organise the entertainment and the staff. I would want to direct what it was, uh, because that was that was very very difficult, and there's so many examples I could I could pull out, <laughs> but um, you know, and, and people, you know, marketing managers calling me saying you're no one's turned up, and I said I told you no one was going to turn up for this. I felt in my head saying I told you no one was going to turn up for this theme or this, you know, particular vibe, but they wanted to do something different and put their stamp on it, and sometimes. You don't want to reinvent the wheel. People always trying to reinvent the wheel, and sometimes you can be like, you know what, this works. People like this. Let's stick with this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. what was the impact if, if, say, a sponsor pulled out? Would that impact you directly, or sort of more an indirect impact? Well, say uh, the entertainment is sponsored by a specific company, so that could be, I don't know, Coca Cola. We never actually Coca Cola sponsor, but say for example, Coca Cola was the sponsor, and then you get more money for the entertainment because you're getting more money from that sponsor and so then if the sponsor pulls out because they no longer like the theme of the entertainment then you you don't get as much money so you know but if I'm not directing event I can't actually decide on those things so I wouldn't go I would definitely when I mean, it was amazing I learned so much but I would not be able to go back to what exactly what I used to do so I've definitely grown from that. Right, so part of that, the picture of what you're selling goes well beyond who you're selling directly directly to and obviously your impact, your your success is impacted by how well they can then sell that to the sponsors. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, that must be quite a, quite a challenging position. I can see why you'd like <laughs> to take a bit more control. And that's what's been so great with my business Kiwi Waterpark is that um, you know, I could decide myself. It was I was B to C, and I could decide what we were going to do and put those things in place and see it work, and not have to fight to do it with somebody else. So it was really great having the control. With it. Yeah. So um, tell us about how the Kiwi Water Park came about. You came back to New Zealand, what sort of early on in the in the pandemic? Yeah. So I came back at the end of March 2020. So England had just gone into lockdown and New Zealand had just gone into lockdown. I came back before the hotel quarantine came into effect, thank God. So I came back. I was able to quarantine at my house in Queenstown. I went for runs. So it was lovely weather. It was actually the first lockdown was lovely. 
and yeah, so I, I decided, yep, I'm going to do this. I'm going to set up this inflatable water park. I'm going to do it. So I did a lot of the planning and the business plan and everything for that for the first lockdown. So then from there, we had to decide where we were going to put the water park. And we looked at multiple locations. We ended up deciding on Cromwell for multiple reasons. A lot of it was due to it being very central to a lot of places. So, you know, you're close to Queenstown, you're close to Wanaka, but you're also quite close to Omaru and Dunedin and Invercargill and Gore and a whole lot of places in the South Island. And, and ultimately, um, we knew the borders were going to be shut for our first summer. So we knew that we were best being somewhere where New Zealanders could access easily. There was lots of car parks because New Zealanders like to drive places. And also the water temperature and the, just the overall air temperature in Cromwell is the warmest place in the South Island by far. So that was why we chose it, yeah. Yeah, it seems to be um, an almost perfect spot. Hard to find somewhere better in the, in the South Island. How was your confidence in terms of, because you know, it's not as though there's a huge population base right there, so if, you know everyone was having to having to travel. So what was your sort of you know vision of how you would get the word out, which you seem to have have done done well, but how did you uh, how did you plan that out? I remember actually, I was like, I know this is going to work. I know my home area, you know, I've been in Otago my whole life, apart from my seven years in London. I was like, I know Otago, I know Southland, I know that people are going to like this. And I understand how people are. And I remember actually, it was in the, it must have been like the July before we opened, July 2020, being up Remarkable Ski Field. And seeing kids literally just do the same jumps over and over and over and over again and line up to the same jumps up the ski field over and over and over again. And I was like, well, these kids have no equivalent in the summer. You know, like there's so many people here, yes, small population, but the people here like doing things that are fun and like um, outdoorsy and, and there's no equivalence in the summer. Obviously there is downhill mountain biking, but there's no like – you know, water or summer activity equivalent. So I felt as though, you know, I knew that the local people would like it and um, I had sort of unwavering faith that they would and I felt as though I could use the skills I had learnt into the millions of different events I had been a part of in the UK and what I'd seen had worked and what I'd seen hadn't worked in terms of everything and in terms of the marketing of those events because it's basically an event that runs for a couple of months. Um, and so I just knew it was going to work, basically. <laughs> but what did the marketing, what did it look like? What did you have? What did you end up you know, going out and, and doing? For as you say, a, effectively a, a two-month event that you have to make incredibly successful, right? Because you, you know, you're able to do that once a year, mm -hmm. uh, you're going to kind of create that build up to it. Then you've got to make it very successful. You've got to manage all of the people, water safety. But ultimately, none of that was going to, you know, matter on the water if people didn't um, didn't come. So, did you start a long way out, or was it something that you really did with a bang as you got you got to you know opening sort of time? So I did it with a bang. We basically kept it completely quiet until we had our resource consent. Uh, um, because I knew, I know what people were like and I knew that if we made what we wanted to do public, there would be some nasty person that wanted to stop us. So we made the decision and we didn't tell 
anybody and absolutely nobody until we had our resource consent it was like not even close friends we didn't tell anybody what we were doing until we had our resource consent at all then we got our resource consent and um that was about a month or so before we opened nothing like and then I really started to put the the pedal on I was like you know I put a whole lot of videos on TikTok. So that was a big of our successes being TikTok. That was in um, 2020, you know, we were probably one of the first businesses in New Zealand to, to have a business TikTok account, to be really, really posting stuff on TikTok. I pushed a lot on TikTok. I put a lot of stuff on all the different local Facebook groups where all the different mums on so I would just write posts just talking about how we're going to bring this inflated water park to Cromwell and that they should come along with their families and it was going to be fun just kind of starting conversations in those local groups and then um, I invited all the media along to our first day um, for our opening and then it just went crazy so yeah it was purely through we didn't obviously have photos of the what the park because this was our first season so we didn't have brochures we didn't have flyers we didn't do any kind of traditional form of advertising it was exclusively through predominant oh and I also use LinkedIn which no one else really does in terms of actually advertising a, a place so I, I used everything I could do for free so Facebook groups LinkedIn Instagram which is dying but I did events a week try and then TikTok so I put everything I could on social media and then I uh, invited the actual media along as well so like I think we had News Hub and the Target Alley Times and things came to our opening day yep yep and yeah went from there <laughs> wow so something like that that's sort of you know B2C business to consumer audience what did you how did you use LinkedIn I just spoke about um, the business on LinkedIn and I um, I remember a few days after we opened, I did a post on LinkedIn, which I think maybe got about 100,000 views, the video, and it was video of the water park and that we had taken on the day we opened. And it was just saying, you know, something inspirational about I had a dream to set up this inflated water park. Everyone told me it was a crazy idea because we're in the middle of a pandemic, but you know, we've just sold out our first two days or something. And yep. then that post got about 100,000 views or so. That's on fantastic. Yeah, I just I just used what I had. Ultimately, it is free to post on social media. And we had, I didn't have any, you know, marketing budget or, you know, a whole lot of money to do ads. So I did what was free. Brilliant. And, and TikTok, walk us through how you used TikTok and how successful what that was because it sounds like that really has worked well for you. TikTok has definitely been our biggest platform. Um, TikTok is huge for us. We've got 160,000 followers on TikTok. We've got videos on TikTok with 3 million likes, 27 or so million views. Um, we just have viral TikTok video after viral TikTok video. Um, through lockdown, as many people did, started looking at TikTok and being like, I really looked at it and I really analyzed who was successful on TikTok, what did they do that made them successful on TikTok, and I basically did that with the water park. So I um, was really in on the trend when everyone else was thought TikTok was just teenage girls dancing and there was nothing else about it. I was like, hang on a minute, um, I think there's more people on TikTok than a few teenage girls and I'm going to really push TikTok. And I spent a lot of time editing TikTok videos. 
So that was huge for us. And, you know, we can see the analytics. So we can see, for example, on one of our videos, it's got 12 million views. We could see that, I think it was like 950,000 of those views are in New Zealand. That's awesome. So, you know, New Zealanders are viewing our TikTok. Obviously, we get a lot of overseas viewers because out of 12 million views, 950,000 were New Zealanders. But that's still 950,000 New Zealanders saw that TikTok, for example. So we can see those analytics. And we had people from all over New Zealand come to Cromwell because of our TikTok. And so I really don't think we would have been anywhere near as successful as we were if, had it not been TikTok. Brilliant, brilliant. Well done. Yeah, it's been good. <laughs> it's my favorite platform. <laughs> and how much of your time have you had to put into that editing and production? Because when, when you've got a small business, right, you do so much yourself. And I pick that's been the, you know, the case with the Kiwi Water Park is that you've been wearing a lot of hats yes so I mean I remember in our first season I'd be there all day managing it and then I would get home and I'd be editing TikTok videos till sometimes 2 or 3 a in the morning so it it's not like you can just post a couple of videos and it's definitely going to go viral you know you have to spend a lot of time editing videos um so I've spent countless hours editing TikTok videos unbelievable amount of hours and commenting back to people and you know improving the interaction rates by replying to people's comments and you know I would say and sometimes in a season I might spend five six hours a day just on social media content and how important have you found it to be interacting with people with the commenters and you know building that connection rather than just posting and walking away it's definitely extremely important. Ultimately, how social media algorithms work is the more interaction you get uh, on social media, the more they're going to show your video or your post to somebody. So an easy way to improve interaction is by commenting back to people, replying to things. If somebody knows that you're going to reply to them or you're likely to reply to them, they're way more likely to comment. The more people that comment, the more people that social different social media platforms will show your post too so yeah but it's yeah, a lot it of work. builds the momentum doesn't it it builds the momentum if no one ever applies to anybody on your social media pages nobody's ever going to comment on your social media pages yep and what are the what are the other aspects you think have been important other than i mean when you watch the videos it looks so much fun um i i showed my son today and, you know, we're looking to be in this region over summer and he's like, oh, that looks so much fun. We have to, you know, we have to do that. So it's it's something that, you know, is, you know, instantly, uh, you know, attractive to people as a as a place to go once they see that video mm. um, content. But, you know, what else do you need to do? Is it, is it up to word of mouth or what are the other, you know, pieces to the puzzle? Yeah, well... Obviously, you know, um, the imagery that we've put on social media has been really good, but it's also realistic. Um, I post just real people having fun, falling off things. You know, I don't, I, the biggest mistake, and I see people make it constantly, is posting social media videos that are too slick. Because nobody likes to see what they appear to be an advertisement. And I think this is a huge difference between especially Generation Z and like 
you know, Generation X, for example, is that um, Generation X or even older millennials, they do posts on social media like an ad, like you would do a newspaper ad or a, uh, a billboard or something that's an advert. You have to make your social media feel completely not like an advert. There are so many mistakes people make. For example, I would never, ever, ever do a TikTok saying, this is how much our tickets are, this is our location, come along, in a million years, because that's an advert, and people don't like seeing adverts. So what I would do a TikTok doing is, say, for example, uh, one I did the other day, how would you jump off the cliff jump, which is like an, a six-meter j- jump into the water and I have like someone doing a bomb off somebody doing a flip off somebody kind of slipping off in a kind of funny way somebody and then people comment ha ha like I would um you know I don't know I'd bomb off or I'd manu off or I'd flip off or I'd be too scared to jump off altogether or whatever so and then there'll be a whole pile of comments saying hey actually where is this place I want to go to this place so that you you know that's a fun kind of interactive thing that I've put up but it's not saying hey we're this price we're at this location this is who we are um and if you did a post which is what a lot of people do on social media which is sales post nobody interacts with it so you cannot do sales posts on social media and I think it's a huge uh thing I see all the time and never gets any interaction so you create this buzz how do you work out how to price how to price it right because everyone's excited they want to come there but there's always a you know a bit of a balance in terms of making it something that's going to uh, you know going to be affordable for families and so on but because you can only run it for two months of the year you can't you know you can't do it particularly cheaply because there's a lot of work that obviously goes goes into that the resource consents and everything else uh, you know hate to think what it cost to set up from scratch the first time around um, so you have to make that pay you know pay off within that two months don't you mm. we just based our pricing off um, the UK as a similar market and um, they open a similar amount of time they have similar seasons um, they for a large inflated water park they same size as ours they charged um, some of the parks have actually gone up now to 22 pounds but they charged 20 pounds a ticket so that automatically um, went to 14 New Zealand dollars a ticket so we literally just and we in Canada and America they are more expensive um, I think their tickets are about 50 New Zealand dollars or so a ticket um, but we decided to just base it off the UK which at that point when we opened our first season, they all tried to charge twenty dollars, twenty pounds. Sorry, twenty pounds, which is forty New Zealand dollars, roughly. So that's where we got our pricing from. Okay. Yep. Yep. And how much were you able to sort of draw from what you'd seen in the UK from you know water parks there? Were they in similar sort of you know lake type scenarios or? You know, what were the similarities and, and differences? Yeah, I spoke to um, people that ran parks all over the world, actually, in the lockdown. It was great because there was uh, – everybody in a lockdown had a lot of um, spare time it, all around the world. So I did call a lot of people um, and I spoke to them about, you know, what had gone well for them, what had not gone well for them. I tried to, like, get as much information from these people as possible Um 
as it was my first rodeo running inflated water parks. So I didn't know what I was doing. And yeah, I definitely relied heavily on the information that I was given from people who ran similar businesses overseas. Um, in Canada, the guys in Canada, really, really helpful. And they're, they're also in an alpine environment and um, lake similar to us. So they gave us a lot of really helpful information. And um, yeah, we just spoke to people. Yeah. Yeah. And did you find most of them were sort of, you know, run by, you know, individual owners that would have one park or were there some with, you know, multiples and has that left you with sort of thoughts about, you know, where to next with the business? Yeah, so there's a mix. So some of the people uh, just have the one park and then some people have um, multiple parks. So we definitely want to open a park in the North Island, hopefully this summer. Um, but we're still working on it, so nothing's confirmed yet. But we're really hoping to open a park on the North Island as well this summer. That's exciting. And there's been some challenges, right? What have been the probably the hardest things that you've had to, you know, you had to deal with? Obviously, you know, right at the outset, you had to, you know, go and, and get the initial sort of resource consent. And, you know, you were, you were cautious about, um, you know, saying too much at, at that point. Um, what, are the, what other challenges along the way? I think definitely... Um the challenge, the first season, the challenge was the wind. We had lots of wind issues. Um, after that, the challenge has been 100% with bureaucracy that we've had to deal with. Um, so that has been the 100% the biggest problem, to be honest. Um, and it has felt for me that the more popular we've been, um, the more people seem to have wanted to stop us. Um, and I think that's a huge issue in New Zealand. I think there is a tall poppy syndrome situation whereby people are like oh that's popular let's start it down <laughs> so it doesn't make any sense but you know that I do think New Zealand has got a massive issue with this and I don't think it is so common overseas I think overseas if something's popular in most places in the world they'll be like let's have more of this or let's make this bigger or let's just make this better not this is popular let's try and shut it down or make it difficult and I definitely have um, encountered that attitude in New Zealand and I didn't and count that attitude so much in the UK or Dubai when I worked in Dubai for quite a few jobs or anything like this. This seems to be a New Zealand thing. That's sad, isn't it? It's a mm. real pity. No, it is sad. And I, I think, I mean, the fact that, you know, um, we had 30,000 people come to the park and then 30,000 spectators, so that's 60,000 people. Um, and anybody even in organisations is suggesting shutting it down is insane. Like, really... Um, you know, you should, you know, people should be like, great, this is popular, let's help this, or um, this is popular, let's make this bigger, or let's put them in more places in New Zealand, not this is popular, let's make it as difficult as humanly possible for these people to open. Um, and that's the attitude we've received, and, and it's really uh, worrying. Um, when at a time, you know, we pay a huge amount of tax, we pay, we hire 20 people, we bring a lot to the economy, and, you know, so it doesn't make any sense at all um, that we've received this kind of attitude from certain people, yeah. Well, best of luck for this uh, this next <laughs> summer season. And, yeah, I'm very hopeful you'll be able to get uh, North Island and South Island running uh, running concurrently and very successful. And I, you know, I think you'll obviously, uh, you know, find a, a lot of interest uh, around the country as you already have done here in the South Island. Yeah, definitely. And I'm I'm feel I'm quite actually happy that I have gone public with the struggles that we have faced because I've received 
hundreds and hundreds of messages from business people around the country saying, hey, you know, we've also received these kind of issues and it's nice, like we've we've basically suffered in silence and it's nice to have somebody be open about it because I think, you know, there's a lot of people in New Zealand that are just trying to run their businesses or just trying to run whatever they're trying to do and they're facing obstacles and it does have a big effect on people's mental health and well-being when they can't, you know, just run a business and focus on actually building the business. They have to constantly be focusing on fighting to be able to run their business at all. Um, So I do think that more light in New Zealand needs to be brought to these issues that people are facing. And, you know, you do see a lot on the news of um, saying, oh, you know, productivity in New Zealand's not very high and, you know, the New Zealand dollar's going down and all this kind of stuff. And people were leaving New Zealand, but, you know, no one ever discusses why and it is because it is very hard to do business in New Zealand and to grow in business in New Zealand and it's not made easy at all and I'm not saying it should be easy but I'm just saying that some things that business people in New Zealand are going through it seems much overkill and it is harder than it would be in other parts of the world so yeah yeah it definitely seems as though there's some some lessons and some you know takeaways from from what you've been through mm. Now, one question we like to ask on on each episode um, is one thing that you could share with listeners, a takeaway that uh, maybe they could, you know, put straight into place and what what they do from a a sales or a marketing perspective. Is there one thing that comes to to mind for you, a recommendation that people could put into into play within their own um, sales and marketing efforts? I think the biggest one would be for social media, as I said, do not make your social media an ad. That is the biggest mistake I see every single day. If you want traction on social media, you have to produce content that people enjoy to watch. And and that's why our content on social media is popular because it's fun to watch. Produce things that you would actually want to watch, not that is going to shove a sales tactic down somebody's throat. And also, um, the other piece of advice I would have is, is is be positive. Focus on the positives and fun. And remember that, you know, people's lives are difficult. People have a lot going on in their lives. And make your messaging as simple as humanly possible. That's why I called my business Kiwi Water Park. It's easy to Google. Everybody can spell it. It makes sense. It does what it says on the tin. I think a lot of people overcomplicate things. And, um, you know, if someone says, what, what do you do? I run an inflatable water park. What's it called? Kiwi Water Park. You know, it's so easy. And you need to be able to say what your business does or what you're selling very in very short terms and make it very simple because people are busy and people have their own lives going on so yeah that's brilliant that's brilliant well thank you so much for coming on the show uh really appreciated you um sharing your experiences and your insights oh thanks for having me all right all the best well, thanks everyone for listening in to this episode of the New Zealand Sales and Marketing Insider. We will be back again in a fortnight with another episode. There's some incredible back episodes. If you haven't caught them, now's the time to go through the back catalogue. Make sure you're subscribed through your favourite podcast app uh, or through Spotify. Thanks for listening in to this episode of the New Zealand Sales and Marketing Insider. If you enjoyed it, you can follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite app.
for fortnightly episodes. For other great New Zealand podcasts, such as New Zealand Everyday Investor, NZ Business Podcast, This Climate Business and more, head across to podcasts.nz. And if it's technology expertise you're after, for a small to medium organisation, then make your way to gorillatechnology.com. And special thanks to our friends at 40 Thieves Nut Butters. Listeners to the show can get a 20% discount when purchasing online. Just go to 40thieves.co.nz and use the promo code INSIDER20. See you next time.